say, Ugandans in a refugee camp in Kenya. In Kenya, there are a lot of Ugandans there for a number of reasons. And if people are known to be LGBT, and some people can't really hide their sexual orientation or gender identity, they're beaten up, they're stabbed, they're not given the same food that other people get, they're persecuted. My feeling is that some people get the help they need, most people don't. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of media for the public good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Gabe. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Lucas talks with Bruce Knotts, the director of the Unitarian Universalist United Nations office in New York City. Bruce is a former U.S. diplomat. His areas of expertise include foreign affairs, international LGBTQ work, and climate change. LGBTQ people from elsewhere in the world can face oppressive and even brutal conditions in their home countries. Their best option may be to get out of the country. On this outcasting series, Bruce and Lucas talk about LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers, the issues they face, and the difficulties they may encounter in trying to find a safe place to live. This is the second part of a three-part series. Bruce Knotts, welcome back to Outcasting. It's great being here again. Thank you. A lot of your current work focuses on helping LGBTQ refugees and helping them resettle. Um, how would you describe your work? Well, I do both refugees and asylum seekers. And I'll tell you the first group. There were two gay guys from Iraq, and they moved to Syria to get out of Iraq where they were being persecuted because of their sexual orientation. And because they're two gay guys and they live together, everybody thought that they were lovers and they weren't. They oh. had no romantic relationship whatsoever. They just happened to be two random gay guys who were just helping each other out in, in a tough situation. And they spent about four years in Syria getting their refugee status. And then they wound up in Houston, Texas. And they were brought over by the U.S. government. And they were put into the hands of Catholic charities to help them get acclimated to the United States. And they were put into an Iraqi neighborhood of Houston, Texas, where they said they faced many of the same hostility and oppression that they were facing in Baghdad. And they said, why in the world did we even bother coming to the United States? Yeah. So we got a call from Human Rights Watch, and they said, you know, we really don't deal with, with case management, but somebody really needs to help these two guys. And there's a Creating Change conference, and it's organized by the Gay and Lesbian Task Force. I think it's now just called the Task Force, and it happens every year. And that year it was in Dallas, Texas. So we invited them up to Dallas, and we paid for them to come up, and we had them tell their story. And it was standing room only. Everybody was packing into the room oh, to wow. hear, hear their story. One of the things they asked the Catholic Charities, they said, would you tell us where the LGBT Community Center is? And Catholic Charities says, well, we don't give out that kind of information. They just refused. Well, the, the head of the LGBT Community Center in Houston was in the room in Dallas when they were speaking. So we kind of took care of that. And I called the State Department. And I said, why in the world did you do this to these guys? 
And they said, well, our primary concern is that we wanted to have Arabic speakers because, you know, they spoke Arabic, so they wanted them to speak Arabic. And I said, it would be much better if you found somebody that spoke gay instead of Arabic. And I teach this at NYU. I said, for some people, putting them in their own national group here in America is not the right answer because that might be the very group they're trying to escape. And that was definitely the case with these two gay guys from Iraq. So eventually, with the help of our congregation in Houston and the LGBT Community Center, we got them moved from the Iraqi hood into the gay hood, where they were much happier. <laughs> the gay hood. The gay hood, yeah. There's a gay hood in Houston. And they got jobs, and they're doing really fine. Wonderful. So I guess just jumping back, what do you currently teach or what did you teach at NYU? I still I have a Saturday class and I teach uh, MSW students, master's in social work students uh, ref on, about refugees and migration. Oh, and do you, I guess your class more than normal refugee and migration classes also talks about LGBTQ refugees, right? Oh, yeah, they get plenty of that. And, and I also bring LGBT asylum seekers into the class. And there are lots of asylum seekers here in New York City, uh, tons from Nigeria, quite a few from Ghana and, and other parts of the world as well. And for a long time, I think people could live on the down low in these countries. As long as they were quiet and discreet about their lifestyle, they could kind of stay below people's radar. But now people are searching people out. And even posting stuff online so they can beat you up. Yeah, like in Myanmar and like Tanzania. Like in Myanmar and Chechnya and a lot of places, a lot of places. So you can't be a discreet gay anymore or, or LGBT. You know, you've you got to get out. Either you get out or you die. And when you're faced with that kind of choice, you just get out. And so we're seeing much higher level of LGBT asylum seekers here in New York City and in all countries, and I'd say the countries that are the most welcoming to refugees uh, anyway are Canada and the United States and a lot of European countries, Britain being one. So they're seeing a big uptick in, in um, LGBT asylum seekers and refugees and migrants generally. So what is the general experience of filing for asylum and seeking refuge, and how is it different as an LGBTQ person than from a straight person? A lot of it depends on where you are. And actually, being here in New York City is the best place to be. If you file your case here in New York City, you have a much better chance of getting a favorable outcome. I also tell all asylum seekers, regardless of whether they're LGBT or not, to get an attorney. The statistics, if you have an attorney, even a bad attorney, just any kind of attorney, your chances of getting the asylum with an attorney are far higher than if you try to do it yourself. And there are pro bono attorneys, Lambda Legal and some uh, there, there are organizations that work with LGBT asylum seekers that will help you pro bono. The waiting times are often long. You have mm -hmm. to wait for an attorney. But I counsel people, it's better to wait and get an attorney than to try to do it yourself. So generally, how would you file for asylum as an LGBTQ refugee or person? So the, the, the basic document is the refugee law, which was passed shortly after the Second World War. And you have to demonstrate a well-founded fear of persecution because of. And it started because of your religion or your politics. Recently, in the, in the past 
decade or so because of your sexual orientation or your gender identity have been added to refugee law. So if you can show that you have a well-founded fear of persecution because of your sexual orientation or gender identity, that qualifies you for asylum. It also qualifies you for refugee status if you're overseas. For example, I'm working with an asylum seeker right now. He's a Muslim. He's from Ghana. His whole family are very prominent Muslims in Ghana, and he's gay. Mm -hmm. And he is convinced that if he went back to Ghana, he would be killed by his own family. Wow. And so he feels he has to stay here in the United States. So we've helped him. He's got an attorney. He's got a, a date to present his case. We're helping him build his case. And we hope he gets his asylum quickly. How did this man from Ghana contact you for help? Or how would a refugee find you guys for help? People just show up on my doorstep. I mean, this this guy in particular, he was president of the student body at the University of Ghana. He was actually accompanying the president of Ghana at the uh, high-level political forum in July, and I met him. And I could kind of tell he was gay, and I think he could tell I was gay, and I told him I was gay, and he said he was gay. And that's kind of where the conversation ended in July, and then here recently, he showed up in my office and he said, I can't go home. They're going to kill me if I go home. I need asylum. And he was emotionally distraught. And he had a whole career. He had prominent, well-connected, politically well-connected person from a prominent family in Ghana. And he's scared he's going to be killed. And what are the odds of such an asylum case, which is filed for to go through and to gain asylum, I guess? Every asylum case that I have been involved with, they've gotten their asylum. Yay! Yes. Um, <laughs> generally speaking, again, I think LGBT asylum seekers have the best chance of getting their asylum, one, if they have a lawyer, and one and two, if they file here in New York City. Or three, if they're working with you. Well, maybe, yes. <laughs> but if, if, you know, if they were in Alabama or Texas or something like that, it would be a whole different story. Unfortunately. And what extra challenges are faced um, by LGBTQ people filing for asylum? Well, first of all, once you, while you're filing for your asylum, you have no right to work. And in some cases, you can be uh, waiting for your asylum for a year or more, and you basically have to live off of charity. Now, housing works helps some asylum seekers or they have helped, they kind of go back and forth, and they will do volunteer work at a nonprofit like Housing Works, and for that volunteer work, they'll get a place to stay. And so there are these kind of informal arrangements which don't entail a salary because it's illegal to pay them a salary, but you can have them do some volunteer work and you give, give them some place to stay, but they basically have to find charity. And they've got to do that for the entire time that they're seeking asylum. It's only when they get their their work permit and they're you know they're basically on track to be to get their asylum, then they can start looking for jobs. And most of them do pretty well. Many of these asylum seekers from these countries, as I've just indicated, are university graduates. They have professional qualifications. They have academic qualifications. And they wind up being very attractive employees and do very well. 
Um, Edefe, who's a Nigerian that I've been helping, I mean, he was in the Elizabeth Detention Center in in New Jersey. And I should mention that these detention centers, although there are asylum seekers and, and refugees and undocumented migrants who are from uh, Sweden and, you know, Ireland and places like that, you don't see them in the detention centers. They're all mostly black and brown people that are there. So there's a racist dimension to this whole thing. Anyway, Edefe was there for six months. He was traumatized by the experience. Uh, but now he's getting like $10,000 for speaking. He has a book published. He's doing a play uh, in New York, not on Broadway, off Broadway. But he's been very successful. And a lot of asylum seekers, because they come to us with professional qualifications, they had careers, they had educational qualifications in their own countries, they do well here. And we just, if we give them a chance, they will do very well. So I guess for LGBTQ asylum seekers, it's often harder to find that like network or community center that's willing to help them and get them through these six months or a year while they can't work. We have done some work and we've worked with other people to come up with networks because there are actually a lot of organizations. Most of the organizations are very small and they can only help a few people. But if you get on the phone and you keep calling these organizations and there are lists, we have a list in our office of organizations that will give free legal services, organizations that will give medical services, organizations that will help with housing and all these different things. And we've now worked with, and I'm forgetting his name, but he's actually a gay member of the city council of New York. And he actually now has gotten that list, and it's now been augmented by others. It's not just our list anymore. It's on 311. So if you call 311 in New York and you say, I'm an LGBT asylum seeker, and I need to know where I can find a lawyer, where I can find housing or medical treatment, 311 has that list, and if you get the right person on 311, he or she will look at the list and say, oh, yeah, you can call this number, you can call this number. And so there are organizations. There is help out there, but it's tough. If you're just from another country and you're dropped down in the middle of New York City finding these tiny little organizations that will help you know, a small number of people and finding one that has a slot and ready to help you, it's, it's tough. It's it's not easy. So obviously in New York, it's very different from the rest of the country. What sort of availability for these kind of networks and services are there in other parts of the country? Well, the, and, and I say this all the time, the best places for LGBT people to be are also the most expensive places to be. So New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, all have pretty good networks to, to help people. There are also very high housing prices. It's very hard to live in these locations. And that's one of the biggest difficulties LGBT people have coming to this country is finding a place where they can live that's cheap or free. Uh, and that's hard to do. The larger cities, and the cities where we live, we, we live in New York and we live in you know, San Francisco, L.A., even like my husband, he's from Texas. If you're if you're in Dallas or Houston, there are large LGBT communities there, and they will help you. Yeah, but for as uh, asylum seekers that are really plopped down in the middle of like the country and aren't close to any of these large 
as you earlier said, um, gay hoods, I guess. Um, it must be really difficult to find someone or nearly impossible, I guess, in some scenarios, especially if you don't speak English or something like that very well. Well, it is. It's interesting you mentioned English. Um, I've talked to a lot of Russian gay men who have escaped Russia, which is one of the most homophobic countries in the world, as is Chechnya, which is part of Russia. And they don't speak English generally. They They speak Russian. And where they are finding help are the synagogues here in New York City because the synagogues have experience in helping Jewish immigrants from Russia. So they have members of their congregations that speak Russian. And even though these gay guys coming from Russia are not Jewish, they're still finding help in, in the synagogues because that's where the Russian speakers are. Uh-huh. But again, if you're stuck in the middle of the country, it's really a big problem, it seems like. It is. It is a big problem. But asylum seekers come to the place they want to come to. They they have choice about where they land. So they're not like plopped down. Refugees are plopped down by the government. But an asylum seeker comes here basically on their own volition, usually on a perfectly valid visa, a tourist visa or a student visa or a conference visa. They're coming here for some other reason, and then they find out they can't go home. One thing that's happened to a lot of LGBT people is that they come to a conference like in Washington, D.C., on AIDS. They go to an AIDS conference in Washington, D.C., and some reporter from The Blade comes up and wants to interview them about what they're doing. Of course, The Blade is an LGBT newspaper in Washington, D.C. So they give an interview, and they don't realize that within nanoseconds of that interview, it's being published in their home country, in Nigeria or Russia or wherever they are, and then they're toast, and they can't go home because they think they're being anonymous. They think they're all the way in Washington, D.C., and what they're saying to a reporter in Washington, D.C. is not going to be repeated back home, and it is, and they find they can't go home. So then they extend. They, they ask for asylum, and they stay. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Lucas is talking with Bruce Knotts, the director of the Unitarian Universalist UN office in New York City, about LGBTQ refugees and asylum seekers who must leave their home countries to escape oppression and seek a safe place to live elsewhere. LGBTQ people are actively persecuted in a lot of regions, as we already talked about, like Chechnya and Russia or in the Middle East. Um, what arrangements can LGBTQ people make to escape these situations as refugees, and who can they trust? It is very tough. The networks are, are few and far between, and they're small, and they only help a few of the people that need it. Most of the people that need the help don't get the help. HIAS is one of the organizations that I have a lot of respect for, and that's the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And um, they do a lot of really good work helping um, LGBT uh, refugees out of places like Uganda, out of Chechnya, out of Iran. There is something called the um, Iran Underground Railroad. It's actually organized by Arsham Parsi, who is himself a gay Iranian. Um, he's headquartered in Toronto, and he helps Iranians 
get out of Iran through Turkey. They usually have to spend some time in Turkey trying to get their refugee status there. And eventually they wind up in Canada. Some of them wind up in the United States. And I would say that's probably the biggest form of help is from people that have made it. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of these people have, have a real feeling of wanting to help the people that are coming after them. And so people like Edefe or Arsham Parsi or other people that I know, once they kind of make it here in this country or in Canada or wherever they are, they try to give back. They try to give some support for people coming after them. A lot of time, other than just having these organizations, I feel a lot of stories I hear or we talk about are refugees relying on like friend networks or family that are trying to help them across to, let's say, the United States or other countries. Do um, LGBTQ refugees often have this access to these networks as well or is it a lot more difficult for them? Sometimes, but a lot of religious organizations and a lot of families are, are the enemy. They're, they're not helping LGBT people. And so they can't turn to family. The families and their faith communities are, are the people that are trying to do them in. So they have to, to be careful about who they trust. And I'd say the, the best groups are LGBT groups. And there, there are, of course, faith communities that are LGBT friendly. I belong to an organization called LGBT FAN which actually stands for Faith Asylum Network. Um, and it's it's a group of faith-based organizations that help LGBT asylum seekers and, and, and refugees because more and more faiths are seeing that if you really believe in whatever your book tells you to be kind to people and to be good to people, that includes LGBT people, LGBTI people. I need to put the I in there. And do LGBTQ or LGBTI refugees face um, higher rates of acceptance or of not being accepted than regular refugees, I guess? Oh, I'd say they have higher rates of not being accepted. And we're talking about the exceptions. I get emails and Facebook messages and other text messages from refugees in refugee camps in Kenya, for example, that are facing a lot of persecution from the authorities in the camp, from their fellow refugees, and they're stuck. They're they're not in a safe place, and they can't get to a safe place. And there's nothing I can do for them. I mean, I try to advocate for them, and I've I've talked to organizations like HICE, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Often they know about these people, and they're doing what they can to help them. But I would say... Of all the success stories, and I've talked about some success stories, there are more people that are not a success story. They're they're in a bad situation. They don't have the help they need, and there's no real hope of even giving them the help they need. They're they're just in a bad situation. And you you're talking about like Syrian refugees, for example. They they're in a horrible situation. They can't go back home. They'll be you know killed by their own country. They're in refugee situations. They're in boats going across the Mediterranean, all these things that we see. And we never really think that some percentage of those people are LGBTQI. And they are. Most of them are very quiet about their sexual orientation or gender identity. They don't talk about it. And yet they are there. And there's no special services in most cases to help them. UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, 
does recognize sexual orientation or gender identity as valid reasons for being a refugee. So there is some help, but it's it's hard to access, and, and most people don't get the help they need. And do a lot of these LGBTQ refugees coming from countries like Syria, where there are mass amounts of other refugees as well, um, need to keep themselves in the closet, so to say, to escape further persecution then? I would say yes. And I, I, it's hard for me as an advocate because people are talking about millions of refugees. Seventy million people are not in their homes right now. So they see that big picture. And here I come and I talk about, well, what about the LGBT refugees and asylum seekers and such? And they said, but that's just a tiny part. And we've got millions of people that need help. And you're just advocating for your little tiny group. And I said, yes, and but they are part of those millions and they need help too. But it's hard to get the attention of policymakers when they're trying to deal with the millions and I'm trying to advocate for the thousands or the hundreds, you know, and uh, sometimes I get traction and people pay attention and other people say, you know, I've got to worry about the millions. I can't worry about the, the thousands or the hundreds. And what sort of special persecution do LGBTQ refugees often face on these journeys or migrations? Usually it is from their fellow countrymen. Because, again, you know, say Ugandans in a, in a refugee camp in Kenya. In Kenya, there are a lot of Ugandans there for a number of reasons. And if if people are known to be LGBT, and some people can't really hide their sexual orientation or gender identity, and they're beaten up, they're stabbed, they're they're you know not given the same food that other people get. You know they're they're persecuted, and again, you know some of this information comes to me. I pass it on to the UNHCR, to the highest, and to other organizations that I think might be helpful. They know about it, they acknowledge it, they say they're working on those issues. But my feeling is that. Some people get the help they need. Most people don't. That's really sad. It is. terrible. We hear about these refugees fleeing from Syria and Myanmar. Um, What is the process of leaving a region like this, especially as a LGBTQ refugee? To leave your country, well, first of all, you just leave. In Myanmar, for example, there are lots of boat people. And they get on boats and they wind up in Malaysia. Some of them make it to Australia. Very few. A lot of them have been going overland into Bangladesh. And many of them are being pushed back into Myanmar from Bangladesh because Bangladesh can't take care of them. And I'm not even aware of any Rohingya, any refugees from Myanmar that are LGBT. They've not kind of come across my my radar screen or or my office, but I know they're there. They definitely are. Yes. Um, And I'm sure that they are being as quiet about their sexual orientation, gender identity as they possibly can. That's really a shame that people have to do that to themselves, I guess, because of the persecution that they'll face. We're out of time, but we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Looking forward to it. This has been the second part of a three-part series. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. 
This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Drew, Alex, Amelie, Andrew, Dante, and Lucas. I'm Gabe. Our executive producer is Mark Sophis. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Gabe. Thanks for listening. This is WJFF Jeffersonville and W233AH Monticello. You were just listening to WJFF. The time now is 359. The temperature in the WJFF listening area is 33 degrees with fair skies. Tonight we have partly cloudy skies with a low of 21. Tomorrow, Saturday during the day, mostly sunny skies with a high of 37. And Saturday night, mostly cloudy skies with a low of 21. Starting Sunday uh, through Monday, there is a winter storm watch. Just want to prepare for that. All the snow and all that. Okay, up next we have All Things Considered. Phillips Design. Sustainably sourced natural fiber rugs for floors and stairs. Designed in Narrowsburg, handmade in Nepal. By appointment and on the web at LizaPhillipsDesign.com. Support comes from listeners and from Nature's Grace Health Foods and Deli on Main Street in Honesdale.